Please turn me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. That's Acts 17, 16 through 21. Remember, the book of Acts focuses on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit through His faithful and obedient people. Up to this point in Acts, we have seen the start, the rise, and the incredible spread of the church to the ends of the earth and to all groups of people. As a result, Satan's brought great opposition and intense persecution to the church, but even so, the church thrives as God works mightily through His faithful, passionate, and obedient people. The church is now flourishing in the midst of trial. If you remember, Paul and Barnabas went on a very successful first missionary journey a couple of years before. And now Paul and Silas, along with Timothy and Luke, are on another missionary journey, the second one for Paul. We know the pattern by now, don't we? They go into a city, they preach the Word of God, and souls get saved, opposition arises, persecution comes, and the missionaries then move on to minister in another city. So, does persecution stop them? No, not in any way. In fact, it spurs them on. Well, the missionary team got separated in Berea, and now Paul is in Athens waiting for the rest to come and join him. Let's find out what happens next. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. We're going to stop here for now. And here in today's passage, we can note three truths to observe. The first being this, that Paul reasoned with the people in the synagogue and in the marketplace. This is amazing, and it's a great example of redeeming the time for the glory of God. Think about this. Paul's in Athens, and he's waiting for the rest of his team. Yeah, there were other brethren who were there with him, but the team wasn't there, specifically Silas and Timothy. So what do you do when you're waiting? Well, normal people do all they can to kill some time, but not Paul. No, Paul preached. Paul preached. He ministered. Paul did what he could to glorify God in the midst of the situation that he was in where God had him. What an example for us. Paul is now in Greece, and if you look at the map, you'll see that Athens is in Greece and was in the province of Achaia. Note that while the city reached the high, uh, its high point three, four, even 500 years before, when people lived here like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, along with Epicurus, who founded the Epicureans, and Zeno, who founded the Stoics. While that was true, the city was still very prominent in Paul's day. Yes, Rome was the political center, but Athens really was the intellectual, philosophical, and religious center. But note this, they didn't know the one true God. But boy, they sure worshipped a whole lot of false gods, In a place called the Pantheon, they had a God for literally everything. Every public building in Athens was a shrine to a God. All of its art had false deities in mind. The great monuments and the beautiful buildings were built as tributes to gods, false gods. So Athens was cultured, and Athens was educated, and Athens was philosophical, but Athens was lost. And Paul is now here in Athens, and he's waiting for Silas and for Timothy to join him. And 
You can just picture Paul strolling around the city and observing what's going on. Don't we all do that? I mean, we go to another place and we want to explore. At least that's what I want to do. Well, Paul quickly saw that (coughs) idols were everywhere. It's been estimated that there were about 30,000 idols in the city. And as Paul observes this, his spirit was provoked within him. Provoked means to be sharpened, to be incited, to be irritated. The word describes a convulsion or sudden outburst of emotion or action. And clearly Paul's deeply stirred by what he is now seeing. Note that Paul sees well beyond the mere external to the spiritual reality. See, Paul really didn't care about the external beauty of the place, not really. And he didn't really care about the architecture and he didn't really care about the great artwork. No, no, no. He looked beyond all that superficial worldly stuff to the spiritual issue. This place is full of idols and these people are lost. Their souls are lost. Hey, man looks looks at the outward appearance, but God looks where? To the heart, right? And that's what God's people should look to as well. What about you? Hey, people all around us are dead and they are lost in their sin. Yes, they make us angry sometimes. And yes, they upset us because of their worldly-minded thoughts and their worldly-minded ideas. But they're lost. And they don't see eternal realities. Satan has a hold of them. They are spiritually blinded and we need to understand this. And when we do, we'll then be able to have love and compassion for them, even when they upset us greatly. They need Jesus, see. They need Jesus and we're here to show Him to them. So Paul's provoked, he's disturbed for very good reason. Because holy hatred is provoked by evil. See, Paul knew that idolatry was demonic and therefore the many gods of the Greeks were tools of Satan to hold these lost souls in his wicked grip. Well, evil greatly upsets Paul and idolatry is indeed evil. And as Paul's walking around Athens, he's seeing all of these worthless idols that are seducing and ensnaring these lost people's souls. And he's not in awe of their great beauty. No, he's sickened at what these idols represent. By the way, that happens every time that we go to Myanmar. The pagodas in Myanmar are absolutely beautiful, truly amazing, but to us they are reprehensible. Why? Because this is where the devil is unknowingly worshipped, and this is what 95% of the nation worships idols, which is really demons. Should that not provoke our hearts? Stir us up. It's happening here too, by the way, in Vacaville. All around us. Hey, bowing down to idols of the heart is just as bad as bowing down to a statue of Buddha. An idol is anything that we put ahead of the one true God and it's rampant in our society. Idol worship. And while people aren't bowing down to statues, they are indeed bowing down to things, their money, to self, to other people, to man-centered evil philosophies, to made-up religions, to sex, to power, to sin. 
Augustine was right when he said that God has created man in such a way that his spirit has a spiritual vacuum. And if it isn't filled by the only thing that truly satisfied, the one true God, then it will be filled with all manner of spiritual counterfeits, none of which will bring true temporal contentment, and all of which will bring eternal discontentment. And he is absolutely right. Hey, everyone worships something. And if it's not the one true God, then it's idolatry and it's wicked and it will indeed land you in hell. And that reality should provoke all of us. It should disturb us greatly. It should stir up our hearts so much so that it compels us to do something about it like it did Paul. Every time he saw one of the lifeless, reprehensible idols, he was provoked anew. It was like a storm brewing in Paul's inner being that compelled him to act, that compelled him to do something. You can just picture him as he's walking around the city getting more and more provoked. There's a holy provocation going on. One noted that as Paul moved about Athens and saw the cloud of idolatry that hung over this city, blotting out the truth and the light and plunging these people into the darkness of superstition, he had to do something about it. Amen to that. So, what did he do? He preached. Or second, as Luke puts it in verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So Paul has to act. And the best way to counterfeit error is to give people truth, and so he preached, he reasoned with the people. <clears throat> Reason's an interesting word in the Greek, dialegomai, from which we get our English word dialogue. And that's what Paul was doing here. He's carrying on a reasoned discussion from the Scriptures with these people. Stephen did that in Acts 7. Paul did it in Antioch in chapter 13. And if you remember, Paul did it in Thessalonica in verse 3 of this chapter. And the goal was to bring these Jewish people along and to show them how their scriptures are all about Jesus, pointing them to Jesus, culminating in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so he went to the synagogue, and as expected, he was able to speak in that synagogue. And so he dialogued with the people, and he undoubtedly took them through the dealings of God with his people throughout the Old Testament, and again, leading them up to Jesus. Note that Jews were there, and so were some God-fearing Gentiles, which were Gentile seekers who were interested in knowing more about the God of the Bible. Note also, so Paul did that, but note also that Paul did it daily in the marketplace. The marketplace was the town square where the people assembled in public. It was a social center of the city where the unemployed, unemployed waited for suitable work, where the sick were healed, where the magistrates judged court cases. And here Paul is in the middle of it all preaching, reasoning with the people. How bold is Paul? Can you, can you picture him there in the marketplace in Athens? <laughs> and, and engaging with any and all who come across his path, repeatedly making conversations with one or more people and undoubtedly exchanging opinions and uh, on spiritual topics with Paul obviously focusing on Jesus. Now, how do we know that he focused on Jesus? Because he's Paul. But, but Scripture also tells us, verse 18, the people accused Paul of preaching Jesus, <laughs> there you go, <laughs> and the resurrection. So Paul boldly went into the marketplace and he mixed it up with the idol-worshiping people, earnestly seeking to show Christ to them you got to love his 
great plan of evangelizing the city. Here's the plan. You go out and you find whoever's around and you tell them about Jesus. That's the plan. Isn't that a great plan? (laughs) Aren't we called to do the same? Here's a thought. Are you on the lookout every day for those souls that the Father sends providentially across your path? And do you tell them about the one who can save them from all their sin? Hey, these lost souls, they are idolaters. They are desperately lost. They need Jesus and the forgiveness that he alone can give them. And we have the good news. Lord, help us to tell them. It's our call. It's our responsibility. It's our stewardship. So Paul was sure to preach Jesus and the resurrection to the people, and clearly that was his end goal. What would he have said? This, that Jesus Christ alone is our hope, peace, joy, Messiah, deliverer, Lord, and Savior. That Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah for the Jews, and also that he's a deliverer for the rest of us as well, our eternal deliverer. And Paul would have certainly explained this to the listeners. The gospel... The good news of Christ. Paul would have began by telling them the bad news first. For in order to be saved, you need to see your desperate need for a Savior, right? So Paul would have told them about sin, about their sin and its deadly, eternal wages. How we're all dirty, we're not clean. How we're stained and marred by sin. How we all sin in many ways, word, thought, and deed. How we are sinners by nature and by choice. And therefore, every human being is guilty before God and condemned to the just punishment for all that sin. Think of it like this. Heaven is perfect, we are not. So, how are sinners like us going to get to heaven when we can't clean ourselves up from this deadly virus of sin and when sin demands to be eternally punished by a holy God? This is dire, see. Because all we can do on our own is to pay the just wages of our sin, eternity in hell. Because sin committed against an infinitely holy God demands infinite wages. So, we're all in trouble on our own. Unless, of course... Someone comes along and pays our wages in our place. But who would do that? And then who is able to do that? Only one. Jesus Christ alone. God the Son. He was perfect. He was holy. He met all the requirements of the law. He never sinned. And he is both willing, good news, and he is able, as God in human flesh, to save my wretched soul and yours. What a thought. What a thought. So what did he do? He left heaven. He came here. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross in the believer's place and he rose up from the dead three days later. And look, through faith in him alone because of what he did on that cross, you can be declared righteous, right, and perfectly fit for heaven. Because of him, you can be cleansed of all your sin that condemns you to hell. Because of him, you can be made spotless even though you're not. It's called justification. And because of him, you can be perfectly fitted for heaven because of him and his perfect work on the believer's behalf. How's that possible? Because on the cross, Jesus took the sin of every person who would ever believe in all of history onto himself. And God the Father punished Jesus for all that wretched sin that condemns us so that he wouldn't have to punish us who believe. He became the believer's substitute for sin. He faced God's wrath for your sin on that cross instead of you. He traded places with you, the believer, and took hell onto himself. And he paid up every cent 
of that hell on the cross so you, the believer, could go to heaven instead. And in return, He gives you the perfect clothing of heaven, His perfect righteousness that fits you for eternity with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Our response, believe. Repent and believe in His person and in His work. Surrender to Him in repentant biblical faith and you will indeed be saved from all your sin. What an amazing thought. What an amazing God. So Paul preached it. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. And then He explained what all of that meant to the people. How good is this? Come on, how, how amazing is our God? Believer, think about what Jesus Christ did for you. Reminds me of that great illustration of the old Indian chief who had years ago been delivered by the Lord by His amazing grace. One day a young man came up and asked that chief what Jesus had done for him. And so that old chief went over to a dry pile of leaves. He found a worm and he put that worm in the middle of that pile of leaves. And then he lit the outside of that pile of leaves on fire. And soon the flames came closer and closer and closer to that worm. And just before uh, the flames reached the worm, the chief plunged his hands into that pile and snatched up that worm, rescuing him from the flames. The old chief then said these words, I am that worm. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's what Jesus did for that old chief, and that's what Jesus has done for every one of us who is in Christ. Rescued. Delivered. Saved from the fires of hell. What a thought. Oh, that people would understand this. Jesus truly is our only hope, and once you have Him, you have everything. Do you believe that? Does your life show that you believe that? Remember the story of the swan and the crane? One day this beautiful swan landed by the banks of the water in which a crane was waiting in the water looking for snails. For a few moments the crane viewed the swan in amazed wonder and said, Where do you come from? I come from heaven, replied the swan. And where is heaven, asked the crane. Heaven, said the swan. Heaven, have you never heard of heaven? And so the beautiful bird went on to describe the grandeur of heaven, of the eternal joy and the peace and the beauty of not only heaven, but, but also of the immediate wondrous presence of the Lord. In eloquent terms, the swan sought to describe heaven, the grandeur of the eternal city, but without arising the slightest, slightest interest on part of the crane. Finally, the crane asked, are there any snails there? Snails? replied the swan. Snails, no. There are no snails in heaven. Then said the crane as it continued its search along the slimy banks of the water, you can have your heaven. I want my snails. Sadly, many like the crane seem to be more interested in snails than in the things that truly, truly matter. Eternal things. The things that please God. The things that last forever. And people today are trading snails for heaven. How tragic is that? But just like God had Paul in Athens, He has us here. And our call is to share the good news with the many lost souls around us who are trading snails for heaven, for glory, for God. Will you share it? Will you tell them? 
Look, Paul's preaching, he's, he's reasoning in the synagogue and in the marketplace, and that caught the attention of some interesting people, verses 18 through 21. Let's look at that, verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. That interesting. So third, Paul encountered three groups of people here in Athens. These groups responded to him, and they're interested in in what he's saying. First is the Epicureans, verse 18. Epicureanism was a Greek philosophy that was started by Epicurus in the 3rd century BC, and it was still going strong when Paul visited Athens here in Acts chapter 17. The goal of the Epicureans was to teach people to relax and to enjoy life without worrying so much. Simplify. See, chill. Don't worry. Be at peace. Enjoy life. The Epicureans taught the need to be comfortably fed, but to not be overfed because that leads to stomach aches. (laughs) Desserts are fine um, and okay if they're rare enough to be appreciated, but not so common as to be expected or desired. Too much education is distressing because it awakens a desire to understand things that aren't understandable. Feelings, not logic, most often reveal the truth about a situation they believe. But politics and power are too stressful, so you just stay away from all that. Things like fame, marriage, and wealth are artificial and very often bring more heartache than joy. But at the same time, uh, go for it if, if you find those things beneficial. Just go with the flow, chill out, don't stress yourself out, <clears throat> and get into that zone of the easy, enjoyable stress-free life. But I have a question. What about God? What about redeeming the time? What about fighting hard in this spiritual battle at hand? What about battling against sin? What about pursuing Christ as your all in all? No, no, no. Chill. Here's a few more of their tenets. One, the Epicureans believe that everything happened by chance. That there was uh, no real reason or rhyme for anything, that no one was really running the show. Oh yeah, they believed that the gods existed, but those gods lived so far away from the affairs of man that they didn't interfere with humanity, and they didn't really care about humanity. What a lie! <laughs> because we know that the one true God certainly cares, and He is involved in our lives, and everyone in all of creation will indeed answer to Him. Two, they believed that death was the end of everything. That you died, and that was it. So what do you live for? You live for yourself. You live for pleasure. You live for the here and now only. See, for them, pleasure was a chief aim of man, which is exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Glorifying God is the chief aim of man. Jesus dealt with this ungodly view really of the Epicureans, but also of so many around us, in Luke 12 by giving us a parable. The parable goes like this. There was a rich man who was a farmer, and things were going pretty well for him. 
So he said, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? I know what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and I'll build greater ones. And then I'll store my crops there. And then I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. So take your ease and eat, drink and be merry. And there we see the problem in the parable that fools focus on this life only. Because God's word is clear that there's much more than just this earthly life. Much more. But the man failed to understand this and so he lived for more. Indulging himself. More for me. See. Living only for this life. Living only for ease and pleasure. Now please notice that this rich man doesn't really know himself very well. See, he fails to realize that his body is mortal and that he might not live for all that many years. And while he's planning to live it up in the future, the future that he's planning for might just never come. This man also fails to take into account that bigger barns and many goods laid up there can never truly satisfy the soul. But no, the soul is only satisfied when you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, when he is yours and you are his, when you know that you are saved and belong to him for all of eternity. And many goods can never satisfy no matter how many goods you have. (coughs) Neither can liposuction A facelift, ease, good food, or the like. No, they won't satisfy. That can only truly come through Christ. It's interesting to note that in the Greek, the words I and my occur 12 times in that parable. That man, man, he's just consumed with himself. Note also that this rich man doesn't thank God and he doesn't glorify God in his life. I mean, at least he could, the least he could do is say thanks to God for as many blessings and then give some of those blessings back to God. But no, forget God, it's all about me. You only live once, so live it up. Big mistake. The clincher of that parable comes when God says to this man, you fool. This very night your soul will be required of you, then whose will those things be for which you have provided? In other words, those things are only temporary. They amounted to absolutely nothing. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That guy's a fool. That's what the Epicureans ignored. And it was a fatal mistake. And yet how many people do this very thing? They go through life, live only for this life, live only for earthly pleasure. They live only for the here and the now. And they fail to realize that they are fools because they have been living for this life alone and not the next life, which is real life. The next life is what matters. And to ignore that fact will cost you your soul. These Epicureans are in trouble. They're in big trouble. And Paul knew that. That's why he's preaching to them. One commentator says that thousands in every age of the world have lived continually doing the very things which are here condemned. They're laying up treasure on earth and thinking of nothing but how to increase it. They're continually adding to their hordes as if they were to enjoy them forever and as if there was no death, no judgment, and no world to come. They are fools. I mean, come on, what about the next life? What about your soul? Ultimately, what the Epicureans taught was a fulfilled life free from pain, free from hunger, free from distress, free from worry, and oh yeah, free from God. They failed to realize that a truly fulfilled life can't happen without the one true God who loves and who saves all who believe on Him in repentant faith. As one said, it is good to have bread and friends. 
It is better to have the bread of life and the friend who made the ultimate sacrifice for us way, 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 way better. The Epicureans are doomed. That's why Paul's preaching the saving truth to them. The second group that Paul encountered was was the Stoics. Now, the Stoics were really nice people, but man, the Stoics were really, really messed up. Stoicism was first taught by Zeno around 300 BC in Athens. The Stoics were pantheists, believing that everything is God. The trees are God. The dirt is God. They were God. The buildings were God. The fish were God. The snakes were God. Uh, the, the waters, all is God. That's called pantheism. What a joke! For clearly that is unbiblical, right? Now, some people confuse pantheism with the doctrine of God's omnipresence. God's omnipresence means that God is present everywhere, that there is no place in the universe where God isn't present, which the Bible is very clear about. But please note that that's not the same thing as pantheism. See, God is indeed everywhere, but he isn't everything. Yes, God is present in a tree and in a person, but that doesn't make that tree or that person God, not in any way. God explicitly says that he's not the same as man, that the universe is a created thing created by him, and that sets him apart from everything else. The clearest biblical arguments against pantheism are the countless commands against idolatry. The Bible clearly forbids the worship of idols, angels, celestial objects, items in nature, and so on. But if pantheism was true, then it wouldn't be wrong to worship these objects because these objects would, in fact, be God. See, if pantheism was true, worshiping a rock or an animal would have just as much validity as worshiping God. But instead... The Bible clearly and consistently denounces all idolatry and all worship of anything but the one true God alone, the God of the Bible. And Paul is brilliantly going to go after this false belief of the Stoics and what he says next, which we're going to look at next week. What else about Stoicism? Much. I mean, the more I looked, the more confused I got. It's not hard to confuse me, but man, this really, this confused me pretty good. But Stoicism is said to emphasize rationalism and logic. But as I looked into it, it clearly was irrational and highly illogical. That said, here's a summary of what the Stoics said that they believed. And this is really dumbing it down. (laughs) Ten key principles of Stoicism. One, live in agreement with nature. In other words, we should always apply our natural ability, reason, in all our actions. If we apply reason, we live in agreement with nature because we act like humans are meant to act. Okay, I really didn't understand that, but okay. Two, live by virtue. I understand that. Virtue, they say, virtue is the highest of all goods. No matter what happens to us, we can always uh, try to apply reason and choose to live in accord with virtue. We should always try to do the right thing. It's all that we can control. So do the right thing. See, I understand that. I mean, do the right thing. That's, that's, that's good, right? Three, focus on what you can control except what you can't. All we can control is our mind and our actions we choose to take. We can try our best and accept all that happens because we don't control it. If we get disturbed by what we don't control, we become helpless victims. Okay. Four, distinguish between good, bad, and indifferent things. The only good is virtue, living by wisdom, justice, courage, and self-discipline. The only bad is vice, folly, injustice, cowardice, and intemperance. Everything else is indifferent and does ultimately not matter for a happy life. Five, take action. 
See, I can, I can understand these, these tenets at least. <clears throat> the true philosopher actually lives by the ideas. He is a warrior of the mind, they say. Many people learn and acquire knowledge only to store it in their mind. They forget the most important part to live and put these things into practice. Six, interesting one, practice misfortune. Imagine potentially bad scenarios in advance and they won't catch you by surprise and you'll be able to face them calmly and act according to virtue. Visualize the bad before and you'll be able to take it much more calmly. Okay, seven, add a reserve clause to your actions. You can only control your actions but not the outcome. You can give your best, but maybe it won't bring the results you wanted. Choose to do your very best to succeed and simultaneously know and accept that the ultimate outcome is beyond your direct control. Eight, love everything that happens. Accept rather than fight every little thing that happens. You don't decide everything that happens to you. In fact, you control very little. Imagine that everything that happens happens specifically for you. Wish for situations to happen as they do and your life will go smoothly. Okay, nine, turn obstacles into opportunities. This is positive, encouraging stuff, right? Pull up your bootstraps and think the best. How you perceive things is highly important, they say. Everything that happens can be looked at as an opportunity, even if it's bad because you can always see it as a chance to practice virtue. Ten, be mindful. You must bring your full awareness to your actions. Otherwise, you act out of emotions instead of your rational decisions. Observe yourself and go through your daily actions before you go to bed so that you'll make better decisions the next day. Now, some of that sounds really good. Really, really positive. Really, really good. I think we would have probably liked many of the Stoics that had we met them. They would have been really nice people. But again, they are lost. Their, their souls are doomed. Here's how one person described the Stoic personality. He is serene and confident no matter what you throw at him. He acts out of reason, not emotion. He focuses on what he controls and doesn't worry about what he can't control. He accepts fate graciously and tries to make the best of it. He appreciates what he has and doesn't complain. He is kind, generous, and forgiving toward others. His actions are prudent and he takes full responsibility. He is calm and not attached to external things. He possesses practical wisdom, justice, and benevolence, courage, and self-discipline. He lives in harmony with himself, mankind, and nature. Again, sounds pretty good. Sounds like a, a, a nice person. But again, <clears throat> it clearly de- describes a lost soul that is heading fast to hell. Because the Stoic philosophy <clears throat> is man-centered, it casts God aside, it can solve the true problem of a person's soul, and it has no real answers for the person's biggest need. What about what happens to me after I die? What about my soul? No clue. Just just be good. That's not going to save your soul. These guys were nice. But they were lost and they were heading for hell. These guys did a lot of good things. But they were lost and they were heading for hell. These guys didn't bother anybody. But they were lost and they were heading for hell. And they needed to know the truth of God, the truth that would tell them about themselves, their true condition, their true need, and their only answer to their greatest problems. See, these people were desperate for Jesus to rescue them, and Paul's going to tell the truth to them. Look, without Jesus, no matter how good of a person you are, you end up in hell. 
But, but they were so nice. Being nice isn't going to keep you out of hell. But, but they did so many good things. Doing good things isn't going to keep you out of hell. But, but they, they won't, uh, but they never bothered anyone. That's not going to keep your soul out of hell. But, but stop it. Only Jesus can keep your soul out of hell by grace through faith in Him alone because of who He is and because of what He did on the cross. That's it. And the God who created us makes that clear in His perfect Word. Jesus alone is our only hope. Jesus alone is our only true answer. Hey, nice people go to hell every day. These people desperately needed Jesus. And so, both the Stoics and the Epicureans desperately needed Christ. And Paul then met one other group of people that day, or some others. That's Look, some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others, some other. there you go. He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So, Look, Paul's in the marketplace preaching to the people there, and that's when he encountered these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and that's when some said, what does this babbler want to say? Now, that's not a compliment. The word babbler means seed collector, and it was originally used of birds picking up seeds. It came to be applied to someone who gains a hand-to-mouth living in the markets by picking up anything that falls from the loads of merchandise which was being carried around. In this context, the word speaks of a person who gathers bits of information and spouts them off secondhand without any real knowledge of their true meaning. Talking about a person who talks idly but with no definite purpose. So when they call him a babbler, they're not complimenting him. They're essentially saying, Paul, you're nothing but a philosophical seed picker. You've picked up bits and pieces of philosophy and religion, shaped it, slapped it all together, and you're trying to pawn it off as knowledge. What an uneducated babbler you are. And so really, they're mocking him. Guess what? It happens. So be it. You, you Christians, you're not rational. Your faith is just a crutch. You guys are intellectually weak. And many who say that really believe it. So it is with the lost soul that has their minds deluded by sin. <coughs> We're in good company, though, because that's what they said to Jesus in John seven fifteen. That's what they also said about the apostles. It's nothing new. But none of that deterred Paul because he knew. As he said in 1 Corinthians 1, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They're lost. They don't get it. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, he said, Let no man deceive you. If any man among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he really may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And then he says, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men. See, the world thinks that it's wise, but it's not. It's lost. And there's always been mockers of the truth and of us followers of the truth of Christ. 
go out and share the gospel with someone, you, you live out your faith, you, you preach the truth, and some people are going to laugh at you. Some people are going to mock you. That's par for the course. Expect it. Well, others questioned, verse 18, they said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. That's really interesting because they said that Paul preached foreign gods, plural, when he was only preaching about Jesus, singular, and his resurrection. But some say that they might have gotten this mixed up and thought that Jesus and the resurrection were two new kinds of deities. And the word, um, the word of the Greek might have thrown them off a little bit. But either way, they're now interested because they're always looking for something new. Who cares if it's not the truth? What's important is if it's a new thing. Man, how sad. Newness to them trumped the truth. How incredibly sad is that? Don't you want the truth? No, I want something new. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. What's that? Mars Hill. See, northwest of the city of Athens is a small hill covered in stone seats. This area was used as a forum for the rulers of Athens to hold trials, debates, and discussion on important matters. Well, these 30 men who made up the Areopagus were basically the supreme judges or the Sanhedrin in this area of Athens. Note that the word Areopagus is a combination of the Greek words for the god of war and stone, literally Ares rock. The equivalent of Ares in Roman mythology is Mars. And so by the time Paul um, of Paul and the early Christians, this location was under Roman control, so the spot was known as Mars Hill. So Paul is taken to this spot, and he's now before uh, the, the group of Athenian leaders and thinkers, and he's there to tell them what this new doctrine was of which he has been speaking. May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? You're bringing some new strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who were there, spent their time in nothing else but to hear to tell something new. Guess what Paul's going to tell them? Paul's going to tell them, look, these people were lost, and again, their only hope is Jesus. How many of you have ever played Trivial Pursuit? I see no hands raised this morning. Ha ha. Trivial Pursuit is a famous board game, but sadly, many even today are playing it with their life. The word trivial means of little worth, little substance, little significance, something unimportant, inconsequential, minor, of little account, of little consequence. And that's what these wise men in the intellectual capital of the world were foolishly doing. And that's what most of mankind is doing with their one short life that God has given to them. <clears throat> and look, how telling is this? They spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Man, what a waste. What a waste of a life. I mean, their endless speculative philosophy <clears throat> led them to hear a new truth, to find a new God, erect a new altar, or experience something new, and they could never be satisfied because they had never found the real truth. They were forever seeking and never coming to the knowledge of the truth, for that's only found in the Lord and His Word. What a waste of precious time. How sad is this? <coughs> Wasting your life away on things that don't matter one bit. Time flies. We only have one shot here to glorify God on planet Earth. Don't waste it. No, redeem it. 
How many today in America are wasting their time in trivial pursuits that vanish into nothingness in eternity? How many, even Christians, waste their time in nothing other than focusing on things which are seen while ignoring the things which are unseen, the eternal things of God? The things which are seen are temporal, but the things of God which are not seen are eternal. For the non-believer, the time is getting short. It's high time to wake up because tomorrow might be your last day. Then what? Wrath if you don't have Christ. This is serious. This is serious. What you do with your soul, what you do regarding Christ is deadly serious. For us in Christ, we're here to glorify God. We're here to redeem the time for His honor and pleasure and to share Him with the many lost souls around us. For again, the time is short and glory, I be, uh, it's just around the corner. Don't waste the precious t- gift of time that God has given to you. For every second that ticks by is gone forever. Lord, help us to redeem it. What do you think Paul's going to do? Well, he's going to seize the opportunity, of course. Lord, help us to be like Paul. Lord, help us all to share Christ with the lost philosophers around us. Lord, help us to be a bright light to those right next to us who are playing trivial pursuit with their souls. Lord, help us. These are serious times. And next week we find out what Paul does with this opportunity, and there is much to learn from that. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we thank you. And I pray that uh, our hearts would mimic Paul's heart, that we would indeed be greatly disturbed by the idolatry that's going on all around us, by the many lost souls that are around us, in this city, in this country, in the world, in our families. Help us, Lord, to do what we can. We know that you're a sovereign God, but you use us, Lord, and we can indeed be a bright light. We're commanded to be a bright light. Help us uh, change our hearts. Make our hearts um, like the heart of Paul, like your heart. And, And Lord, help us to care and to show, to live brightly in this dark world and use us to have an impact for your glory. May you be well pleased with us. And Lord, we trust you. We trust you. Bless us today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.